Gotta unmute yourself, Janet. All right. Dang, technology. Maybe the robots are not coming for our jobs. Maybe they are. Who knows? Hi, everybody. (laughs) Don't say that. Yes, we'll get into that later. But uh, yes, as uh, as we all know now, I'm Jamie Beck. I'm X Ash Andy (laughs) Twelve. And uh, we have three guests today. Magali Miranda is a graduate student in Chicano studies at UCLA. She's interested in community engaged research with Latina immigrant workers and organizers. Her work has been published in The Nation, Verso, and The New Left Review. We also have uh, Aaron Bananoff, who is a researcher in the social sciences at the University of Chicago. He's writing a book about the global history of unemployment. His two-part article, Automation and the Future of Work, recently appeared in New Left Review. And I hear he may write for another journal that we won't mention at the moment. We also have, last but not least, Annie McClanahan, a professor of English at UC Irvine and the author of Secular Stagnation and the Discourse of Reproductive Limit in the 2018 Routledge Companion to Literature and Economics. Everybody is very impressive, and I'm very excited to talk to all of you. Yeah, so the broad topic that our guests uh, have written about and that we're talking about today are jobs, various jobs that have been kind of brought into the spotlight uh, in our time of pandemic. Uh, For example, circulation jobs uh, like trucking, delivery, retail, etc. Also care work, uh, elder care, child care, and health care, domestic workers, and a possibility that hangs over all of them, automation. For decades now, calls for higher wages or improved conditions in jobs like these are often met with the threat to invent a robot that can do it better. Yet now, in the face of this pandemic, calls for a temporary end to all in-person work, uh, these jobs have been deemed essential. Where are Amazon's picker bots, delivery drones, and cybersecurity dogs? Oh, where no. Are, where They're right are behind the, you. <laughs> where are the algorithmic just-in-time triages and supply chain for hospitals and store stocking? Uh, were these empty promises, empty threats, or are they just around the corner? Protect um, your neck, folks. And more importantly, we want to talk about the actual workers uh, who, who do these jobs. Um, a recent test in San Francisco of about 4,000 I think randomly chosen residents for COVID found that 90% of those who had tested positive had something in common. They had to go out to work. They did not work from home. Uh, They had to work probably among other people. So these essential workers, cashiers, delivery people, nurses, janitors, et cetera, they face the most danger of becoming infected and becoming vectors, a problem compounded by their often low pay and social status, That means they live in denser areas, often polluted enough to cause these uh, so-called comorbidities like asthma, for example. Uh, And often they live with elderly relatives uh, if they don't work with elderly people, if these uh, workers are not elderly themselves. So on top of that, many of them are not citizens. And so they don't qualify for the meager government stimulus or unemployment and also are constantly under the threat of uh, state discipline. But Joe Biden said the virus affects everyone equally. That's the last time we're going to be talking about Joe Biden tonight, hopefully. 
Um, so we're going to be asking how these workers are surviving, how they're struggling, and what a more dignified future for them and for all of us might look like. Hell yeah. I'm so excited about everything we're about to talk about. But before we embark on this magical communist idea journey, I would like to do a quick go around, a check-in perhaps. So we were all supposed to be in Seattle today. Um, what would you all be doing if we were there? Well, if it's anything like last year for me, I would eat a one-to-one -one edible, wander around uh, a random park like Kurt Cobain in Last Days, and then go to the Nancy Fraser talk just in time, and then leave early because I'm a little bit too high and take a nap at the quad. Sounds like you were living the idea of social reproduction right there. Yeah, it was lit. Can't uh, reproduce yourself if you don't take naps. Uh, well, let's see. I, for one, uh, judging from what I know about Seattle would probably be hiding from the rain somewhere, um, eating a giant fish that was thrown at me for some reason, and uh, treating my imposter syndrome at one of your city's uh, medical marijuana clinics. I might also be emo <laughs> posting about how very, very happy I was to be around so many wonderful and smart leftists and really sad that I don't get to meet all of you in person. Uh, we know there's no substitute for the face-to-face, -face, especially in this increasingly alienating and atomized world, but the show must go on. So we're going to try to make this work. But don't be a tourist, Andy. <laughs> they can tell. All right. So let's get into it uh, first. So we're going to have everybody sort of briefly, maybe five, 10 minutes, describe uh, the nature of your work that we'll be talking about today. And we're going to get started with MAGA. Hi. So I wanted to start my talk by thanking the organizers of Red May, especially um, Philip for all his work coordinating in the middle of a pandemic and now trying to get um, refunds for all of our plane tickets. So um, thanks for for, to Phil, and then thanks to Sean and Mike who are behind the scenes. Um, and of course, thanks to um, Jamie and Andy for hosting us. And um, so what I want to talk about today is this work that I've been doing for the past three or so years. Um, I've been studying what you might call the future of work from a care work perspective. Um, so I'm interested in uh, questions of value, valorization, and self-valorization that I'll talk about in a sec. But I really also want to talk about how one of the guiding lenses of my analysis in the work is uh, this question of Latinidad. And I, so I would say that I begin from the premise that care work and especially um, housekeeping, but also childcare, care for the elderly and people with disabilities has to be understood as racially and sexually segregated um, segment of the U.S. labor market. And you know, in today's terms, we might think about this as the kind of work that's, you know, people are talking about essential, but excluded. And I didn't set out initially in the beginning to think about care work in the gig economy. In fact, when I first learned about care work in the gig economy, I was like, this is like Uber, but for care work. It's really not in ways that I'll talk about in a second. But I use the term care work here. Um, as defined by Rachel Brown to refer to the tasks and occupations involved in the care of children, the elderly, the infirm, but also housekeeping, nursing, and sex work. And beyond occupations, I defined housework in terms of the work of caring for things like physical chores, cooking, cleaning, and washing, 
but also caring about, uh, including children and elderly care. And crucial to my understanding of care work is this notion that it's an othered economy vis-a-vis um, -vis the sphere of production. So to quote Drusilla Barker and Suzanne Feiner, some of the um, feminist economists I'm thinking with, um, they write that the economy of the market is the familiar public economy of supply and demand, production for exchange, profit, and class conflict, while the economy of the household constitutes the other economy of domestic relationships in which people are produced through expenditures of time, affection, and money. Indeed, where money is exchanged in the mainstream care economy, it remains overwhelmingly private in character, mediated by personal networks outside of the market economy, uh, third-party brokers, be they private firms or not-for-profit operations, remain um, sort of fringe phenomenon. For instance, I'm looking at a 2016 study conducted by uh, researchers at my university at UCLA and the Institute for Research on Labor and Employment. The study was called Profile Practices and Needs of California Domestic Employees. And in this report, researchers found that in California, 71% of employers, the vast majority use their personal networks, that is neighbors, colleagues, and friends to hire domestic workers. While the same study found that a much smaller percentage only 15% hired care workers through an agency or organization, and only 17% in 2016 used a website or classified ads. Um, studies like this one suggest that it would be appropriate to assume that a majority of care work services in these occupations remain in a technical sense, largely outside of the sphere of productive activity, given, given the fact that private that it's sort of private and informal in nature and that these uh, services do not generate a surplus in any kind of direct economic way. So what I'm interested in is that, that nevertheless, in spite of this kind of private um, aspect, there's been like all these thought experiments that hasn't stopped uh, multiple generations now of liberal and socialist feminists from appropriating economic grammars in this practice of self-valorization of these myriad productive activities perform, performed primarily by women and other subordinated peoples. And we can think here about the examples of uh, wages for housework or the demand for greater automation, industrialization, and even the obsolescence of housework as projected by Angela Davis in a 1980s article of that name. One such appropriate appropriative move that I want to focus on here, though, involves the practice by feminist economists of developing models to assess the potential cost of social reproduction in terms of gross domestic product. I'm thinking here about the early pioneering work of Nancy Fulbright of uh, naming this unproductive housewife, but more recently uh, work by folks like Catherine uh, Moose, and um, especially earlier this year, uh, there was a widely shared report by Oxfam that um, is estimated the value in theory of women's unpaid labor globally at $10.9 trillion. So until now, these appropriative moves have been useful thought experience in, in, in many cases, anchoring important calls for Keynesian style social welfare reforms, or in the case of wages for housework, and Davis, um, they function as agitprop uh, or transitional demands, so to speak, to expose the in incapacity or inability of the profit-driven system to provide for these unproductive and unprofitable so-called labors of love. And this is um, 
I want to say that while important, these kind of uh, feminist arguments about the that have been theoretical in nature actually do quite little for us today to help us analyze the mechanisms by which a new strata of industrialists on the frontiers of platform capitalism are creating uh, markets, new markets precisely from these very tasks. So what I want to hypothesize here is that what we're seeing is a shift in the role that capitalism has played in care work, um, a moment perhaps of restructuring and recomposition. And what's more, it's precisely in these moments of crises, the multiple crises of capitalism, of care, and the present public health crisis caused by COVID-19, that these corporations have emerged to manage the crisis. And that uh, at stake for these questions, for these firms, is the ability to really capitalize on this potential value, this $10.9 trillion, and, and possibly more from this current crisis. So in, the, ooh, in these last uh, slides, I want to propose that it's a not insignificant, I want to propose a not insignificant uh, paradigm shift in the way we think about care work. Um, in, in previous years, we've thought that care work is from the point of view of capital needs to remain a backwards privatized island, but in, in social relations, and I'm arguing that perhaps that's not the case, and that this isn't simply true at the level of countercultural or hegemonic projects to value care work or feminized labor, but that when I began this research, there was no such thing as um, coronavirus, but there were already various firms competing for the title of managers of this crisis of social reproduction, a crisis born of a demand and supply issues in the care economy that I don't have the time to get into here. But in these kind of last slides, I really briefly wanna discuss two of the care work platforms in, questions, in question and the responses to the coronavirus before I'm handing it over to the next person. Uh, I believe you can see my screen, but this is a photo of Handy, um, this message, as you can see here, is from April 22nd, 2020, and it reads, New Service Alert, Disinfection and Decontamination Service, and it's uh, a service that's provided at uh, starting on $900. Um, I think that this new service alert is sort of ev evidence that uh, these companies like Handy are creating new needs um, around this kind of crisis of social reproduction, but now also COVID-19. And that, um, as you can see here, I go into a lot more detail in, in my research about the ways that they, they, there's a subjectivation process in terms of how these brands are competing to be managers. And uh, I call this the Walmart of social reproduction, as you can hear, see, see here. Um, they have services for all kinds of things. And their ideal customer is someone that they call the do it for me customer. So in certain ways, this is um, dealing with demand side issues of the crisis of social reproduction. And then this other photo is from April 29th and this is from care.com. It's a picture of someone washing a baby's hands and it's a part of an email that was sent to care workers. And then the title is called six questions, nannies and sitters should ask before caring for kids during COVID-19. And this is part of um, care.com, a service that care.com provides where they uh, have forums, where uh, they have paid bloggers, such as experts and influencers, um, providing resources for care workers, in this case, um, nannies. And here you have a, an example of um, a resource related to COVID-19, but they also have, um, in, in times not of COVID, um, 
resources like this one about how to negotiate your wages with your employer. So this is a way that um, these companies are, are dealing with the supply side of the crisis. And we can talk more about this in the conversation. But I just want to end quickly by saying that there's also been a response to COVID-19 by the kind of movement of low-wage immigrant workers. And I've been fortunate enough to be involved in, in Los Angeles with some of these folks. And um, they're also thinking critically about how to respond and sort of manage the crisis. And one of the things that they're working on is a campaign called SB 1257, which is part of this kind of movement against uh, exclusion of domestic work from uh, Cal OSHA protection specifically in the state. And I think that's where I'll finish. And thanks. Great. Thank you. There was, there's obviously a lot to go into there. That was, uh, in my opinion, a pretty fire thesis. Um, so hopefully we'll get into more of that in the Q and a, uh, next was it, uh, Annie or Aaron wanted to go? Uh, yeah, I can go. Yeah. All right. So, um, great. Well, thank you so much for having me. I've been wanting to come to Red May for years. I'm, I'm very sad that, you know, I'm very happy to be here now. Sad that it's over the internet and, um, uh, like MAGA, I want to thank the organizers and, and also especially Jamie and Andy for, for having us. Um, I'm going to try to do a little bit of like dramatic read of, um, just a, little bit of the preface from my this book on automation um, but the only thing you have to know in advance is um is uh is the this movie the basic plot device of this movie they live by john carpenter which is an incredible movie but apparently some people haven't seen it but if you haven't seen it all you have to know is that at some point in the film the protagonist finds these glasses these sunglasses and when he puts them on he can see like the truth in advertising. So he sees like the billboards say like obey and money says like, this is your God. And you know, the whole, the whole sort of obey propaganda shepherd fairy fashion line all comes from this, uh, this movie. So anyway, that'll, that'll be relevant in a moment. So here, here I go. The internet, smartphones and social media have already transformed so much about the way we interact with each other and come to know our world. What would happen if these digital technologies moved off of the screen and increasingly integrated themselves into the physical world around us? Advanced industrial robotics, self-driving cars and trucks, and intelligent cancer screening machines appear to presage a world of ease, but they also make us uneasy. After all, what would human beings do in a largely automated future? Would we be able to adapt our social and political institutions to realize the dream of human freedom? that a new age of intelligent machines might make possible? Or would that dream turn out to be a nightmare of mass unemployment? In two New Left Review articles published in 2019, I identified a new automation discourse propounded by liberal, right-wing, and left analysts alike. Asking just these sorts of questions, automation theorists arrive at a provocative conclusion. Mass technological unemployment is coming and can be managed only by the provision of universal basic income since large sections of the population will lose access to the wages they need to survive. In my articles and in my forthcoming book, I argue that the resurgence of the automation discourse today is a response to a real trend which is unfolding across the world and perhaps quite obviously uh, in the present moment. There are simply too few jobs for too many people. 
This chronic under-demand for labor is manifest in economic trends such as jobless recovery, stagnant wages, and rampant job insecurity. It's visible as well in the political phenomena that rising inequality catalyzes, like populism, plutocracy, and the rise of a new seasteading digital elite, more focused on escaping in rockets to Mars than on improving the lives of the digital peasants who will be left behind on a burning planet Earth. Pointing with one hand to the homeless and jobless masses of Oakland, California, and with the other to the robots staffing the Tesla production plant just a few miles away in Fremont, it is easy to believe that automation theorists must be right. However, the explanation they offer that runaway technological change is destroying jobs is simply false. There is a real and persistent underdemand for labor in the United States and the European Union, and even more so in countries such as South Africa, India, and Brazil. Yet its cause is almost the opposite of the one identified by the automation theorists. In reality, rates of labor productivity growth are slowing down, not speeding up. That should increase the demand for labor, except this productivity slowdown was overshadowed by another more eventful trend. In a development originally analyzed by Marxist economist Robert Brenner under the title of The Long Downturn, and belatedly recognized by mainstream economists as secular stagnation or Japanification, economies have been growing at a progressively slower pace. The cause, decades of industrial overcapacity killed the manufacturing growth engine and no alternative to it has been found, least of all in the slow-growing, low-productivity activities that make up much of the service sector. As economic growth decelerates and the rate of job creation slows, it is this, not technology-induced job destruction, that has depressed the global demand for labor. Put on the reality vision glasses of John Carpenter's They Live, and it is easy to see a world not of new automated factories and ping pong playing consumer robots, but crumbling infrastructures, crumbling infrastructures, deindustrialized cities, harried nurses and underpaid salespeople, as well as a massive stock of financialized capital with dwindling places to invest itself. In an effort to revive stagnant economies, governments spent almost half a century imposing punishing austerity on their populations underfunding schools, hospitals, and welfare programs, as well as transportation networks. At the same time, in a world of ultra-low interest rates, governments, businesses, and households took on record quantities of debt. They did so not in order to invest in our digital future, as former Reserve, uh, Federal Reserve Chairman Alan Greenspan argued they would in the midst of the late 1990s tech bubble. Instead, firms mortgaged their assets to pay off their shareholders, while consumers borrowed in an effort to barely make ends meet. These trends have left the world economy in an incredibly poor position as it faces one of its greatest challenges, the COVID-19 recession. Dilapidated healthcare systems have been overrun with patients and schools have closed that were for many children vital sources of basic nutrition and pediatric care. Meanwhile, the economy is tanking. Heavily indebted companies watch their stock values plummet at rates not seen since the Great Depression, while unemployment rates in the United States rose stratospherically, leaving large parts of the population unable to pay for food, medical care, and housing. In spite of a massive monetary stimulus, weak economies are unable to bounce back quickly from the shock. It is easy to see how over the long term, the COVID-19 recession will accelerate what are by now long unfolding trends of rising economic insecurity and inequality. It is precisely for this reason that it's so important to reflect on today's automation discourse. Automation theorists open a re utopian reply. They offer a utopian reply to our increasingly dystopian world. 
remove the they live reality vision glasses and return for a moment to the world of fantasy inhabited by these authors. In it, we all work less like the victims of the present recession, yet we have access to everything we need to make a life. We spend more time with our families, but not because we're under quarantine. The elderly jog through parks wearing new exoskeleton jumpsuits rather than dying out of breath in hospitals. And the air has been cleared of smog because we are rapidly transitioning to a world of renewable energy rather than because factories have been shuttered and people are no longer driving cars. With the exception of the exoskeleton jumpsuits, all of this is possible now if we fight for it. We can already achieve the post-scarcity world that the automation theorists invoked, even if the automation of production proves impossible. My interest in this topic arose from two distinct sources, one in the deeper past and one more recent. Like many of the automation theorists, I grew up in the 1980s and 90s, reading science fiction novels and watching the spacefaring communists of Star Trek The Next Generation tour the galaxy. My father, who inspired these interests, was himself a researcher in the field of automation. Like many of his peers, he left a career in academia to try his luck in the startup culture of the 1990s. Some people made a lot of money in those years, but many more did not. Most internet startups went bust, leaving their overworked engineers with little to show for their efforts. Interning with him at a different company every summer of high school, writing HTML and JavaScript, I decided there was little promise of happiness to be found in the digital economy. So I devoted myself instead to studying the history of economic growth and unemployment, the twin engines of prosperity and insecurity in the contemporary economy. In the aftermath of the 2008 crisis, I became involved in the social struggles of my time, an experience I attempted to digest through conversation and collaboration with fellow members of the EndNotes Collective. The unsigned co-authored texts we wrote have greatly influenced the analyses that I make in my, my own project. It was through an encounter with two critics, Nick Cernicek and Alex Williams, who's inventing the future is a key example of the left-wing automation discourse, that I discovered the intellectual uh, ecosystem of automation theorists, which led me back to a childhood love of science fiction and at the same time transformed my outlook on the future. As I devoured book after book by these theorists, supplementing that still growing reading list with forays into utopian and science fiction literatures of the past, the conviction grew within me that these theorists had done more than anyone I had recently encountered or yet encountered to think through some of the key aspects of the organization of a post-capitalist society and to imagine some pathways by which we might get there. I disagreed with their analysis of the present, but saw responding to their vision of the future as a way to develop my own, which by comparison with theirs was still of the dullest possible gray. In my work, I explore the possibilities for achieving a post-scarcity world without the full automation of production by sharing the work that remains to be done in a way that restores dignity, autonomy, and purpose to life, to working life without making work the center of our social existence. In the course of an exposition and critique of the automation discourse, I give an account of what's happened to the world economy and its workforce over the last 50 years, uh, focusing on the origins development of a present day chronically low demand for labor, which I hope we'll be able to talk about today. And I discuss some of the policy alternatives that attempt to resolve this failure, neoliberal structural adjustment, Keynesian demand management and universal basic income. And I sketch out a post-scarcity world against which these um, proposals should be measured. Writing this book and doing this project has only further convinced me that turning the tide towards a more humane future will depend on the refusal of masses of working people to accept a persistent decline in the demand for their labor and the rising economic inequality it entails. 
Struggles against these outcomes were unfolding with increasing intensity across the globe in the years before the COVID-19 recession, and they are likely to resume in the future. We need to immerse ourselves in the movements born of these struggles, helping to drive them forward. If they fail, maybe the best we will get will be a higher social wage in the form of a universal basic income, a proposal governments are now testing out as a possible response to the present recession. But we should not be fighting for this model, modest social goal, but for a truly emancipatory transition to a post-capitalist world. So I'm excited to talk about that stuff. I don't know. I hope that's at least interesting in, in some respects. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to talking to you guys. So I'll pass, pass my mic. Great. Last right. we have Annie, and we have some questions in the chat already. Keep the questions coming. We're going to try to get to everything. Um, thanks, everybody. Um, thanks, especially, as everyone else has said, to Philip and Andy and Jamie and Sean. I'm actually kind of grateful. It's one of those COVID silver linings. I actually wasn't able to come to Red May this year because of my what, what had appeared to be a hectic travel schedule. And so um, I'm getting to do this now because of because it's virtual. So um, thank you for that. Thank you for including me. So um, I'm just going to read a little thing that, that I've been writing sort of um, in the in the margins of my day between um, homeschooling my kid and trying to do my job. Um, and partly it's, it's a way of thinking about um, what occurred to me as like a set of interlocking um, sort of conversations that I saw happening. Um, the first is about sort of the fate of the neoliberal project. Um, and in particular, it's fantasies about markets as these sort of magically self-coordinating systems that don't require intervention. Um, and the relationship in a way between that fantasy and variations of, of what we might call cognitive mapping, our attempts to sort of see the whole. Um, I've always been fascinated by the way that the sort of neoliberal economic thinkers like Hayek and Friedman talk about holes and the, the sort of the similarities and differences between the way that, that they talk about that and the way that Marxists do. Um, and the second is about the fact that under current circumstances, this is, you know, sort of fairly obvious and connects up a lot with, with MAGA's um, wonderful presentation about the way that workers in the logistics and service sector, um, including many who have been sort of um, subject to the new forms of intensified exploitation due to gigification um, have become newly essential to social provisioning. So the book I'm writing now is basically about um, contemporary service work and about what happens as a result of its um, sort of the intransigence of, of service work when it comes to increasing productivity. So it's about things like um, piece rate wages and tips and, and wage forms that attend seem to attend new forms of service work. Um, anyway, so it, it occurred to me that these two things, this idea about what markets can and can't do as self-coordinating systems and this thing about, about workers um, kind of fell into that broader, both fell into the broader category of circulation. So, um, so this is called on circulation. We think a lot about circulation. We think about supply chains, the shipping container, the warehouse, the big rig, the loading bay, the pallet, the shelf, the delivery vehicle. There's a version of this that Bruce Robbins has described as the quote, sweatshop sublime. The sudden realization, he writes, quote, that one is the beneficiary of an unimaginably vast and complex social system that brings goods from the end of the earth to satisfy your slightest desire. For Robbins, the sublimity of this moment lies in the abyssal sense of powerlessness that attends it. To realize that we are part of an unimaginably large whole is unsettling. We feel as small and powerless when we contemplate the vastness of the market as we do when gazing at the vastness of the mountain. This powerlessness thus distinguishes Robin's sweatshop sublime from the more self-satisfied feeling Milton Friedman experiences as he ponders the free market, quote, 
coordinating the activities of hundreds of millions of people all over the globe under ever-changing conditions, or the quote, marvel Friedrich Hayek says we ought to feel when we consider the natural and uncoordinated working of the price system. Yet Friedman and Hayek and Robbins too are all describing this coordinated vast network system when it works, at least for those for whom it works. But this is first world thought, it's neoliberal thought, boom time thought. It's not crisis thought, and so it's not what we're doing now. Instead, we think about why GM can't use its idle factories to make ventilators instead of cars, about why virus testing kits get stuck in warehouses rather than converging magically from the ends of the earth, to use the Friedman phrase, and going where they're needed most. We see the empty shelf where the toilet paper or the dried beans should be. We wonder why all the demand in the world can't magically coordinate a supply of face masks. On the phone, a friend says, I can't stop thinking about all the hands that touched everything I buy. That sudden awareness of what it takes to get an apple into your cart is different than Robin's Sublime and Hayek's Marvel. It's not the largeness of supply chains and provision networks, but their intimacy, the human labor whereby goods move from hand to hand to hand. Here's Marx, quote, all commodities are non-use values for their owners and use values for their non-owners. Consequently, they must all change hands. This changing of hands constitutes their exchange. When one commodity replaces another, the money commodity always sticks to the hands of some third person. Circulation sweats money from every pore. Hands in marks are usually synecdoche for human manual labor. Sometimes the substitution is manifestly ideological as when he ironizes the 19th century thinkers that described workers as hands. Elsewhere, the relation between the hand and the homo faber it stands for is more slippery, neither pure metaphor nor pure description, as when hands symbolize the special but exploitable power of human social labor. As in the line, many hands cooperate in the same undivided operation, such as raising a heavy weight. The passage about circulation, though, does something different. Marx isn't describing the productive activities of homo, homo faber, but the circulation of made objects. The spectacular visibility of this exchange, he says, is a kind of misdirection. Because it is only an exchange that we see the money, we assume that the noisy sphere of circulation is where profit is made, when in fact such surpluses are created only out of view. Yet if circulation sweats, so do circulation workers. 19th century sweated production labor allowed manufacturers to expand work and output without investing in buildings and machines, as unskilled workers, mostly women and children, did unskilled work for piece rate wages in their own kitchens, decentralizing the industrial workforce and preventing collective labor unrest. 21st century sweated labor, however, is mostly circulation work, in the overdeveloped world at least. Stalkers and packers at Amazon forced into nearly machinic levels of work speed up pushed to their limits, they are still a bit more efficient than machines, and denied workforce protections or collective bargaining, thus recall the 19th century sweated out workers despite the change from tenement to warehouse. So do gig workers, self-harrying frantically from store to car to delivery point and back again, driven by the lash of today's version of piece rate wages. The tips that constitute the bulk of their wages paid not by the firm, Instacart, we ought to note, is valued at a cool 100 billion or so today, mostly because it pays only a fraction of its own labor costs, but rather by the recipient of the service, who can tip whatever they want, including nothing at all. Like work, fever makes you sweat, 
And so too, we hear a prescient viral echo in Marx's image of exchange that sticks to us, of the appendages and fluids that both lubricate and threaten the smooth flow of goods. You put on the shirt and forget about it, Robin says of outsourced sweatshop labor. And so too, despite being first forced to see, we could then numbly forget. We could clear from our mind that fleeting glimpse of the dock worker, the stacker, the driver, the unloader, the shelver, the deliverer. We could wipe each item down. We could accept the economist's desire to price out human life, to weigh economic cost against lived human catastrophe and to treat the former as natural and the latter as inevitable. We could accept too the newest version of a restricted household imaginary in which the narrow walls of our homes contain the maximum unit to which we can extend our care and concern. Or we could think otherwise. We could refuse to see our personal safety as our zero sum due and instead see that inevitable, unintentional, invisible connection is another name for solidarity. On the one hand, the virus is thus a kind of horror movie image of that solidarity. Yet if we don't think in terms of that broader, wider, more complicated solidarity, the solidarity of transmission, say, we will too easily accept the risk trade-off where those of us with privilege and security can allow others, essential workers, exposed workers, to take on the risk for us. We might also shift the terms of our imagination by thinking about what Jasper Burns has called counter-logistics and Joshua Clover circulation struggles. For Burns and Clover, the social movements of the future will look less like the production struggles of the past, strikes mediated through organized labor or parties, and more like building occupations, general strikes, and highway, pipeline, port, or railway blockages. Much as transmission is another name for solidarity, today's lockdown is a kind of dystopian inverse of those circulation blockades. But what if we put our fascist immigration system or our oil pipelines or the rideshare economy or the entire Amazon logistics network on lockdown instead? These solutions seem right there, almost in our very hands. So let's see. Okay, this question is mainly for Baga. Um, so as you note in your piece, um, liberal and leftist feminists have long tried to put a price tag on the value of kind of social reproductive labor, uh, and care work to the capitalist economy. And they do this in order to argue for reforms or more radically to make it a terrain of struggle with the goal of reorganizing or even abolishing it. Um, is there anything about this that you still think is useful or does the distinction between productive and reproductive labor not matter so much anymore, given the line that the line between them is starting to blur as uh, services like Handy, like you referenced, are extracting surplus value from them? Um, and of course, it's all part of the same system of exploitation, which we ultimately want to get rid of in its totality, right? I guess that's a very long-winded question, but um, th that's that's just what I'm like. So <laughs> you can you can pick up where I left off. That's a question I don't have the answer to. Like I don't, I'm not at a place to say whether this is a trend that'll actually stick. I mean. I'm sure someone else asked like what the kind of profits for these companies are. I think it's like very early to tell whether I'm not arguing definitely that there has 
you know, as there, as there is with um, ride hailing, for instance, that there's a sort of assumption that like um, Uber and Lyft are like monopolizing this, this kind of market. I'm not sure that I, that I believe that care work is at a place in the same way as ride hailing. And this is where I, like I, I mentioned at first that it, you can't just think about it in terms of um, ride, uh, ride hailing, but for care work, you know, like Uber, but for care work, because there's a lot of specificity and some of it is reminds me of what, um, what Aaron was saying about like the fear, fear of the robots. Like one of the funny things that I've done when I get into any Uber or Lyft nowadays is like, I explain to the Uber or Lyft driver if, about the, the work that I'm doing. And I asked them like, you know, would you use an app like Uber or Lyft to um, find someone to care for your kids or to care for your family member? And it's like very cultural, but you'll have people that will say, I would never like, right. And I'm like, okay, well, but you lo- ride Lyft or Uber. So there still is like um, a, an ideological and cultural um, barrier to you know, if not like a theoretical one, like a cultural barrier to whether or not like more of these companies, I think will end up, you know, monopolizing or like actually recomposing. So it's like, um, I'm not sure that we can sort of throw away these ideas of um, these like liberal or feminist ideas about the um, schism between care work, uh, sorry, unproductive um, labors of love, so to speak, and, and kind of production. So um, I don't know if that answers the question, but that's some of the stuff that I'm thinking about. No, I, I think it answers it. Um, so, so you do find value in this, in this framework still, basically. Yeah, contextually. And, but, but one of the things that I will add is that I think that um, some of the um, theorizing around um, the, you know, the housewife, so to speak, or like the working class housewife um, need to be understood as like historically and very like localized phenomena. So, you know, when we talk about like Italy in the 60s, 70s, it's not the same as, you know, the, the U.S. context where we have different things. So I think that a lot of that kind of... Um, discourse around the housewife or housework um, that we inherit from, you know, the Italian model, for example, is probably um, more exaggerated than it probably should be. And I I don't think I'm the first person to say this. It's not an original um, idea, but I I tend to agree. And and I think that, you know, when we're talking about um, care work, this question of like composition and recomposition is important to think about, um, as I mentioned. So we'll see whether um, these companies end up effectively reorganizing um, social reproduction, but we don't know, I think, now. Yeah, a quick follow-up from the chat. Uh, you've written before uh, for Viewpoint about the, the struggle of mostly female immigrant domestic and now I think it's interesting to combine that with this conception of $10.9 trillion out there, unwaged, 
Uh, and so this question from the chat is along those lines. As capital appropriates informal care labor markets, what does the process look like for workers, especially domestic migrant labor? So I, yeah, I've been looking at a number of these apps really from a kind of media and communication perspective. Um, so sort of studying the platforms and what kinds of um, images and texts they say about themselves. And one of the sort of interesting sort of first things that I realized was that um, as as there's this kind of sort of future of work and like endless possibilities of the kinds of, you know, people are saying like robot, you know, like we could think about like the Jetsons um, nurse, but in reality, a lot of these uh, companies still use overwhelmingly images of immigrant Latina women. And that, um, that the fact that that persists, um, even within these kind of um, techno futurist like futures is fascinating to think about um, because there's, it sort of flies in the face of this idea that, um, that once you formalize this work, that there, uh, there'll be like sort of um, less discrimination on the basis of um, who does the work or not. But in a lot of the, um, my, my, lens is really on LA. And I think um, just from studying like hundreds of these worker profiles, I'd say that the overwhelming majority are women of color. Um, I think you do see some um, workers and, and I should say uh, Latina and black women specifically. And you do see like some older white women, some men of color, um, but the majority are, are still um, Latina and black women. Yeah, thanks. I, I remember seeing a, a, a news piece recently in New York on, on CBS. Um, and the, the, the title of the piece was, now that we're in the pandemic, should we still pay the nanny? That was the, that was the question in the piece. And fortunately, they came to the conclusion that you should. But the, the expert really said, nice them. but the expert said, well, you know, you don't have to, but it would be nice if you would. But it's um, kind of unimaginable how much it hurts to lose those jobs. Yeah, I'm also thinking about uh, the ways that um, Aaron wrote about uh, the the gap between the wages of the average worker and the underemployed worker determining the growth of the service sector. And I'm wondering how you see that manifesting in care work and what kind of effects it's going to have if average workers are losing wages uh, mm -hmm. themselves? Yeah, I mean, a lot of this is a really a question about the race to the bottom. <laughs> um, and we're seeing, I guess I should just say that we don't have a lot of data. There was, there's a really interesting um, report that was done by a group data and society in New York on um, the sort of key differences between like Uber ride hailing programs and um, sort of platforms and care work platforms. And if you look at the method, at the methodology section at the very bottom, right, because they're sociologists, one of the key things was that they said that because a lot of these 
platforms are sort of emerging around the same time in the mid um, 2010s, at the same time as the kind of Trump administration, that you have a lot of um, undocumented or just um, racialized Latina immigrant workers who just didn't respond to any of their um, like pleas for um, data. So I don't, it's, it's going to be a process of, I think really, this is why I do ethnography, right. To try to like build rapport with groups so that we can actually better understand. But uh, this is a situation that, you know, the, it's been described to me by um, low wage immigrant worker organizations as a crisis on crises for the workers themselves, where a lot of them were already undocumented, already working in these kind of informal and excluded sectors of the labor market. And then now they're excluded also from sort of federal relief projects for the most part, because they're undocumented and um, excluded from labor protections. So it's ugly, I think. Bleak. Um, Annie, did you have a follow-up question you wanted to ask? Yeah, I did actually. I, I just, for, first I wanted to say like how uh, totally awesome I thought that, I think that your work is and like what you presented, it's really great. And I, I just had a question that's sort of out of my own curiosity that I think thought you might be particularly well positioned to answer. Um, I mean, I, I think obviously it's totally totally true that like the this is a site this is a particular form of work where the sort of like robots will replace us discourse is like particularly wrong-headed um and yet on the other hand you do have these transformations of the the sort of labor organization systems that happen as a result of the apps and it has struck me as i've been writing about gification sort of broadly speaking that one thing that the apps do and this is fairly minor in terms of the global economy, but it's major in terms of the profitability of some of these companies, is that the one thing they do manage to automate out is management, right? That the app mm-hmm. essentially performs the, the mediating work that an entire class of human resources managers and other kinds of work process managers would have once done, right? So if if tailorization added this whole massive managerial class, gigification essentially automates it away, right? Um, and so I was just sort of wondering like about that. And then the other thing I was sort of just, I'm curious about is that the other thing that these, that it strikes me as possible that these apps do, I mean, we know that they do, I know that they do this in terms of Uber and Lyft and the delivery systems, but I know less about the care work apps is that they, well, they do what like mechanization has always done, which is that they don't automate labor out of existence, but they speed it up and intensify it, right? They make it more difficult and they make it, they make the labor hour denser essentially, right? They make it harder to, to like fuck around basically or shirk, right? Um, And they make Mm -hmm, you have to work mm -hmm, faster. mm -hmm. And so I'm just curious, like if you compare like tidy, for instance, to like Mary maids or some other kind of like more traditional employment model, like do the apps, does the way that the time is managed and structured on the apps, does that, does that affect like a work process speed up, like a, a temporal speed up or an intensity speed up? Like what, how does it change the experience of work compared to those like older sort of like outsourcing systems um, that wouldn't have been mediated through like these like direct to consumer kinds of platforms? Yeah, I guess um, one thing just to respond really quickly to this question about time um, is to say that I think one of the points that I'm trying to get across is that there's not like a standardized um, Mm -hmm. platform, um, that different platforms use different technologies. And what's interesting is that when you compare Handy to something like Care.com, it couldn't be sort of more different in the sense that... um, 
Handy has a coding system. And I showed that in, in some of the images if you, if you would see, but this is what a, a lot of the work that I did was just like, how does this work? And they create um, definitely creating like packages of like, okay, one hour, two hours and for this many bedrooms. So a lot of it is standardizing that work. And that's what's interesting about Handy and platforms like that. Um, I know from like just browsing um, forums of like Yelp and, and other forums where workers talk that um, workers make about 50% of uh, what the service costs. And so the company keeps the keeps about 50%. So you hear a lot of this on Yelp from the point of view of clients complaining about um, the, the rates of exploitation of their workers where a lot of them will ask um, the worker how much they made and compare that to how much they were charged for their particular service. And they're pretty outraged if you go on, on Yelp. Something like care.com though, I think is interesting because it uses this more, um, what uh, Tiziana Ternaud would call like social production uh, processes, um, where a lot of it is um, forum based and based on um, conversations and negotiations. So that's why care.com really operates on this model of like, these forums are so important because those are the spaces where um, the company uh, teaches you know, inoculates people on, on how to negotiate wages. And they'll send these like emails fairly regularly to um, workers telling them how much the average rate is for services at, by their state. So um, they care.com makes money, not from uh, the actual um, care packages, but like in the same way that Handy does, where there's a kind of um, number of rooms, hours, and, um, and, and a price attached to it, but they make money from uh, these resources that they provide for clients and for care workers. So care.com tries to get people to use um, their, like a, a sort of Venmo style platform for pay to receive payments, I think for the purpose of kind of um, getting, uh, scraping off some of the, the wages that are paid, but um, for the most part, from what I understand, workers on care.com negotiate directly with um, clients for the most part. And I worked as a, as a care.com, I should say I worked for care.com and it's always cash-based. A lot of it is sort of still informal or cash-based. So care.com finds novel ways of, of making a profit, not in the same way as handy. I think that's one of the interesting things about studying these platforms as a, as a whole, like care work platforms, because they're, they're, they vary pretty vastly from platform to platform. So yes, I... yeah, thank you um, for that answer. Um, we've been speaking of the precariousness of this kind of labor and some of the challenges involved in organizing include, you know, when you're working in someone's house, you're not working with other workers, you're atomized. Um, the kind of work that you're doing, people often depend on you, right? You feel bad if you're responsible for a child or an elderly person, it gets harder to go on strike. What are some of the ways that workers are pushing back under these circumstances and organizing for a better life? I, I guess I'll take that question. Um, 
I think that I, I've been thinking a lot about this because um, I it's a frustration of mine that, um, you know, when we talk about like things like the international women's strike, um, the kinds of occupations that um, are often, you know, highlighted in, in when we talk about kind of social reproduction struggles or struggles on the terrain of social reproduction are nurses and teachers, which is sort of great, but it's functionally very different from these kinds of um, domestic work that, as you're saying, is, in, is more informal, atomized. Um, and that's because, as you're saying, in part, in part because I think there's a, an affective uh the affective nature of some of this work like right because you care about a child but the same can be said for nurses and um and teachers you know you care about the the children or your patients so it's got to be something else and i think that something else is that is is that labor discipline and and the kinds of um fear around um questions of migrate migration and uh, immigration and racialization that are pretty particular to a lot of these um, groups, you know? And so I think that that manifests in the way that people in these sectors, um, the, the kind of struggles um, that are not, then not really recognizable in some, in some ways, because a lot of what they're doing is like lobbying for, um, you know, they're, they're lobbying and right now they're doing a lot of virtual lobbying to Sacramento and, and a lot of it is like uh, mired in like respectability, a certain kind of respectability politics that has to be there, I think, in, or at least there's a perception that that has to be there because uh, these people are, are already criminalized and um, racialized. So yeah, this is a kind of question. I, I don't have the answer to it, but it's, you know, it's a challenge. For sure. Um, I guess I could open up a related question to everyone, um, which is, do you see labor in, oh, that's not the right one, haha, <laughs> uh, which is, what new radical organizing capacities, if any, might be collaterally available through these new kinds of value change the channels of labor, an example being the essential worker? That's a question from the chat, by the way. We, we were keeping a list of the questions from the chat. Also, hello to Sophie and Kyle, who joined us. Thanks for tuning in. Shout out, shout out. Sorry, maybe ask, ask that question again. That was probably distracting. Okay. Take it from the top. What new radical organizing capacities, if any, might be collaterally available through these new value chains and channels of labor, and I will add new categories and ways of thinking about labor, an example being the essential worker. I mean, I'll just sort of say briefly that I, I think, you know, one of the interesting things about um, some of the work that I was referring to in the piece is, um, is that, and the sort of broad category of circulation workers as a, as a sort of even larger category of the service sector. Um, uh, you know, part of it is about imagining the kinds of lines of solidarity that would extend beyond all kinds of traditional divisions that have 
historically fractured the labor movement divisions around racialization, gender, and, you know, citizenship status, but also around the distinction between, like, let's say, dock workers and warehouse workers and care workers and people that work for tips at restaurants. Um, so I actually do think um, that it's precisely the sort of importance of this large, massive part of the labor force, which is the sort of low-waged service sector, the, the low-waged end of that sector, um, it's it's precisely the, the largeness of that sector that makes it if difficult to organize like absolutely necessary to imagine those people as in solidarity with one another across those kinds of divisions. Um, and I mean, you know, if you want to know exactly how big that sector is, you just have to look at unemployment numbers, right? Because those are all the first people that were laid off is like the lowest waged portion of the service sector, barring those considered essential workers because they, they, they work in sort of food supply chains. Um, and so, I mean, I don't, you know, what kinds of like on the ground organizing happen right now is hard to say, um, but certainly you could imagine, I mean, that's why I was sort of thinking about like, you know, lockdown is a, another way of understanding circulation strike, it seems to me, right? Like that's what we're talking about when we talk about like blockades or barricades is locking down the networks of, um, of, of um, circulation. So I do think that there are possibilities in this moment, um, even as it's also very difficult to imagine how we have social movements without contact. <laughs> Right. Yeah, thanks. Um, there's a, a question in the chat that says maybe this this concept of of more um, uh, care work being included or sped up or, or intensified with gig apps might be in conflict with Aaron's account. So maybe we maybe that'll just sort of be naturally answered as we move into uh, Aaron's uh, talk on automation. Um, so first, I, I kind of want to ask uh, about this fundamental disagreement you have with the automation theorists. So a, a common narrative that I, I've heard, uh, maybe you could call it a populist narrative, is that the deindustrialization in the United States is, and it's the, the, the job loss uh, that, uh, in the, you know, in the Rust Belt, for instance, that uh, uh, corresponds to it, is not only due to outsourcing, but also automation, and that there isn't less manufacturing, there's more manufacturing, but less of a need for manufacturing workers. And this is a key concept for the, the reason automation theorists say that, you know, machines will just get more and more productive into the point where we won't need workers at all anymore. So, you know, your talk, uh, much like the scene in They Live, where, uh, you know, the, the guy fights the other guy in the alley over the course of 10 minutes, and I think maybe that's the, the length of your talk as well, you know, it's, it's forced me to put on the glasses. And, um, <laughs> and uh, just in case anyone else can't see through these these sunglasses. Uh, let's let me ask you: What is your fundamental like? What is uh, what do the automation theorists get wrong? You know, obviously there's this question over the uh, misunderstanding of the differences between production and output. So I'd like you to define that. But in general, what is what is their um, perspective on what's going on in the global economy uh, that they they don't they don't see the way you see and the way I see now? Okay, well, um, I wish I had my own sunglasses put on now so I could see the world as it really is. But taking the world for a moment through the, through the kind of um, the beautiful lens, as it were, the fantasy uh, lens of um, the automation theorists, the idea is basically that, you know, technologies are already replacing workers throughout the economy. And if that were true, 
it would show up in the statistics as um, a very high rate of labor productivity. Like in essence, you know, labor productivity, we think of it as a measure of how much uh, value each of the workers is producing um, in, in their work, in their working day or per hour. Um, but if, if workers were disappearing, the remaining workers would appear to be getting ever more productive because the total amount of value produced in say a day with fewer workers, it would be rising quite dramatically. So a big problem for the automation theorists insofar as they look at the data is just that there's just no evidence that that's happening. There's just no evidence whatsoever that um, productivity growth is increasing. And even the idea that it's occurring at a kind of steady pace, like sometimes you know, automation theorists talk about the second half of the chessboard, which is this metaphor about the, the, the rate at which like, um, actually we're all experiencing this now, just exponential growth, right? Like the idea that, oh, there weren't that many COVID um, cases a you know, a few weeks before. So it doesn't seem to be growing that fast. But like, once you hit that inflection point of the curve and the rate, you know, the, the compounding effect of growth over time, they say the, the, um, the effect of just steady productivity growth will be this incredible effect over the long term. In reality, rates of productivity growth are just slowing outside of a very small part of um, manufacturing. And even that seems to be because of a kind of mismeasurement. So it's just not possible to attribute what's happening and all of the job loss in manufacturing and the general difficulty that workers have finding jobs in the pre-COVID economy. And then especially what we'll see emerging um, over the next few months and years. Uh, and so you have to find an alternative explanation for that. And I think it's quite clear that the explanation is not that jobs are being destroyed at a particularly fast rate. It's that jobs just aren't being created at the rate they used to be because we've just seen a steady decade by decade slowdown in the rate of growth of the economy. And this is true here. It's true in many countries around the world. It's obviously not true in every country. There's been, um, you know, the, the kind of ideological celebration of capitalism uh, has been all about really rapid growth in China. But even China, uh, their economy has really been slowing down in terms of its growth rates. The growth rate of the so-called BRICS countries, Brazil, Russia, India, um, South Africa, as well as China, they've all seen their growth rates really collapse or at least um, significantly slow down in the past uh, decade. And, you know, we're just going to see this get even worse. Like, People often compare, they think about the pandemic that we're experiencing in terms of a kind of like wartime, like there's a wartime type conditions. But um, a group of social scientists whose names I unfortunately forgot, I, I can try to find the paper later, but I don't know what good that will do. Anyway, they just show that if you look historically, pandemics, unlike wars, don't really cause growth rates to increase after there isn't a post-war boom. Instead, we see a post-pandemic stagnation. So I think that the pandemic will actually tend to, as it were, kind of accelerate this decelerating trend uh, in a lot of ways. So that's what they get wrong. In essence, they say productivity growth is increasing. I say that the economy is slowing down. And all I mean by output is um, just production. You know, production is expanding at a slower pace. And what that means is that fewer jobs are being created. And that just means that workers are having a hard time finding jobs. And to get jobs, they have to uh, take lower wages or accept more exploitative working conditions. And that's been a very general feature of um, American working life all the way up um, 
the the wage scale, I think, quite far up it. People have been feeling much more precarious, much less able to ask for wage, ask for wage increases. And those are just like the measurable signs of the degree to which workers have been screwed and how much room there is um, for employers to exploit them. I'll buy that. Um, we definitely uphold line goes down thought at the Antifada. So you will not hear any <laughs> arguments from us that we can somehow uh, get in a time machine and go back to the golden age of capitalism via MMT or something. Great. I'm with you guys. <laughs> so, so let's talk about the UBI because I think a lot of people on the left have been kind of quick to discard it as an idea. Um, and so a lot of the arguments I've heard against it are sort of like vulgar workerist ones, which I hate, right? Like how will people find value in life if they're not forced to perform a job every day? Like fuck off, we should be able to do what we want. But then I read some critiques from you that made more sense, but let's start out with the socialist proponents of a left UBI, right? Because I've heard it posited as a kind of non-reformist reform or capitalist road to communism. Even we had Peter Fraze on the Antifada mm. recently, and he talked about it as just one vision of the future, you know, acknowledging the intense amount of class struggle and power that it would take to even get a UBI that was enough for people to live off of. Um, and, and I kind of like it that it delinks uh, labor from your access to the basic necessities of life. But um, what do you like about the left UBI? And where do you think it falls short? Because I think that its appeal is obvious, right, as a kind of a uh, nonviolent way to social revolution, uh, transitional reform that sort of undermines its own tax base as we go, and eventually, uh, you know, step three, communism. But uh, what what is what are the strengths and weaknesses in your opinion? Yeah, I think that that's a great way to put it because I um, part of this whole project of thinking about automation UBI is to take seriously that like the left needs a positive vision. It needs some account of like the world that we wanna to get to, um, the world that we're struggling to create. And I think um, a big problem for myself and the people I've you know been around as it were on the left, maybe not everywhere, I'm not sure, um, is a sense that like we don't exactly know what we're fighting for. We know what we're fighting against, but we don't have a clear vision of the world that we wanna make because um, Soviet socialism was just a total disaster, authoritarian nightmare. Um, Keynesianism, you know, was never that great. As you said, the golden age was, was um, a golden age only for some, and even in what regard it was is uh, quite limited. Um, and then, you know, yeah, like other kind of alternative visions um, have all been, as it were, kind of lost along the way. And so I really understand, like you said, like UBI, as a positive vision, there's a lot of reasons to like it, um, especially in the United States, which has this racist um, in origin and of course in present day as well, welfare system that means tests everything. Uh, we saw this in the last election where, you know, the proposal for universal um, healthcare, but especially like universal college education, right? Free college tuition. There was this whole idea like, oh, well, we need to means test it. We should really see if people need it. Um, and that was proposed by many people in the Democratic primary opposed to Bernie, like saying that 
um, you know, rich people would be able to access this thing. And not talking at all about the ways that means testing ends up making uh, light. It's just so degrading, right? Like all of the things, all of the ways that our society um, makes poor people jump through hoops in order to get access to the basic things that they need. And so living in a world where people could just have this income that would support them, that's obviously a good thing. And like, I'm in no way trying to discount that. Um, I think that universal benefits should be extended like way more widely. Like people should have access to all kinds of things without having to pay for them. Um, and so, yeah, anyway, so those are the positives, right? Now, maybe I turn the, the other side of the coin. Um, I think that a big problem with the UBI discourse, as you said, like the thing that's great about it is that it disconnects um, the income people earn from the work that they do to some limited extent. Um, to have actually, you know, one part of the story is that if it were to disconnect it to a really great extent, it would be a really expensive program. And that raises a lot of questions about um, sort of like the actual struggle within capitalism to create something like that why we would fight so hard for something. It would be so hard to get that, um, to actually be high enough to make people's lives really good, not just a minimal level, which is what the neoliberals want, but this kind of left-wing version um, would be much more expensive. So why fight for that? Why not fight for socialism? Um, but the other, uh, the other side of it, as it were, is not just that it would be more expensive, it's that UBI disconnects people's wages, uh, sorry, the income they earn for the amount of work they do, but it doesn't disconnect income from profit, basically. Like it doesn't disconnect income from wealth. It doesn't attack the way that capitalists are able to and wealth holders are able to extract huge sums of money um, without working at all, just through the ownership of stocks and firms and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and in, an, in a world where the economy is slowing down, uh, and in which there's a kind of increasingly small um, rate of growth, uh, the struggle, the idea of a left-wing UBI depends on the idea that that's not happening, that in fact, growth rates are, as it were, kind of accelerating, productivity is growing, and the whole problem that we face today is merely a problem of distribution. There's so much like goods in the world. Um, the problem is just that they're all being consumed by rich people, and we just need to change that distribution. If the problem instead is that the economy is slowing down, then any attempt to kind of make that um, battle to raise the social wage immediately would confront, it would become a zero-sum struggle between capitalists and workers. And in that case, like you have to actually have a theory of what you do about production. It can't just be a theory of distribution. We have to think about production. We have to think about the fact that the world economy today is kind of held in a stranglehold by capitalists threatening to disinvest from production and using the threat of disinvestment and actual disinvestment to get all of these things from society, from workers, and so on. And so in my view, the big problem with UBI is that it's merely a distributional theory for an era of the crisis of production. And in that regard, we would need to find some alternative mode of, as I said, kind of disconnecting income from assets or income from wealth. And that story, the story of taking hold of production, is something that I think um, it's a very difficult question, what I call the conquest of production. Uh, there's a whole history of debate about it. There's, of course, all the failures of central planning to resolve that question. I'm not saying I have the answers to it. But in any case, those are, those are the kind of problems I think we really need to think through.
Sorry if that was too long. <laughs> no, no I mean, it's at, great. At the end of your piece, you uh, maybe you don't provide the answers to these questions, but you at least, I think, ex try to experiment with a vision of how work can be different. For example, you even talk about, you know, very briefly how like care work can be different if it weren't, uh, you know, um, so limited to like one person's tasks or something like that. Uh, so, and I, I think that's, uh, you know, you trying to um, play on the automation theorists terrain of like, well, if I don't want fully automated luxury communism, what kind of future do I want? And, you know, that's a, a very important part of the piece. I encourage everyone to read it. Um, and I think I read that part nice and slow so I could <laughs> yeah, spend yeah. lots of time in that future. <laughs> um, but uh, let's just round it out with a couple questions for Annie, and then we can all just chat amongst each other for as long as we'd like to, I imagine. Is that okay? Hell yeah. Cool. I'll go for as long as everybody <laughs> wants. I got nowhere to be. We're all going to be just polite and stay here until like uh, <laughs> 1, 1 a.m. Um, so, Andy, what I really liked about uh, your piece was this sort of reimagining the, uh, you know, the, the supply chain. So it's not this like mechanical dead thing that's, you know, more or less automatic, like a, an apple goes on a conveyor belt, goes on a ship and ends up, you know, in the the ends up in the port of Oakland. It's these are human beings who are, you know, handing things off and sweating and such. Um, and yeah, you, you seem to be, want to reconceptualize solidarity in a way. Um, let me just find the quote here. It was, uh, yeah. You say we could refuse to see our personal safety as our zero sum due and instead see the inevitable unintentional connection Transmission even is another name for solidarity. So I, I didn't fully grasp what you meant with this image of solidarity. Could you help me out a little bit? Yeah, totally. I'm not really sure what I meant either. Uh, it's cool. Um, I mean, part of it is that like um, it, when I was sort of working on this project, reading the sort of um, the, the tradition that comes to be known as neoliberalism, but that begins with marginalism in the late 19th century, I was really fascinated by the sort of um, reigning idea and economic theory of methodological individualism. Um, and one of the sort of um, sort of things that emerges out of methodological individualism and that comes to be called neoliberalism is this sense that the extension, the possible extension of sociality is very limited. So everybody quotes that Thatcher line about there is no such thing as society. There are only individual men and women, but she actually goes on. There's a, the second half of the sentences and families and churches, right? So the conception of what a kind of social world might look like for the for these methodological individualists that that come to be, that become ultimately neoliberals is that you have a system of elective affinity, so that like I we have things in common, right? We we have a set of beliefs in common. We have a, we have a neighborhood in common, right? Um, the narrowest version of that is the family imaginary, and that's as narrow as we are right now. Um, this idea of like the household. Um, not even the extended family imaginary. It's actually supposed to be just the people that you live with in your house, right? Um, and so I'm interested in like what that sort of narrowing of the social imaginary means, but but that happens well before COVID, right? It happens in, in these thinkers like Hayek and Friedman where um, the, the biggest version of the social whole that you can get is people that you can sort of see and know and have a kind of um, what liberal theor theory would call elective affinity, like affinities of choice. Um, 
But what solidarity means and also what thinking in terms of totality means is that you have to think about connections that don't, that aren't visible, that extend far beyond what connections that you might elect or not elect to have that, that happen even outside of your, the realm of your own individual choice, right? Um, that's what it means to be a part of a class. Um, and so one of the things I'm interested in is just what it means to think about this idea of transmission of sort of unavoidable, uh, invisible, vast forms of connection, not simply um, through the image of the virus, but also as another name for solidarity in sort of the way that I think like a I mean, I'm kind of like always interested in traditions and horror film traditions. That's why I invoked the sort of horror, the image of horror film as a sort of image for, for ideology, but like the way that Romero would treat zombies as a form, as like a, an image for, for proletarian class existence, right? That like, there's something about these ways of being like subject to the same kinds of bodily vulnerabilities that happen when you can, can catch something terribly contagious that, like read differently, it looks like utopia. Word. I had another question for you. Oh, behind <laughs> you. Oh no, it's a monster. <laughs> we are getting Sorry, bad. Do, real. do a little care work here. <laughs> care work uh, in action. <laughs> so there are some people who think that the kind of vast and complex logistical networks built up by giants like mainly Amazon could be repurposed to serve the people if we manage to expropriate them somehow, either by nationalizing them as a kind of ready-made central planning apparatus, as I've seen argued in Jacobin and elsewhere, or by more radical kinds of takeover, perhaps, and even decentralized rearrangement or bricolage, as I've seen argued by the eco-socialist collective Out of the Woods in a very good essay on disaster communism that I read as part of the DSA Libertarian Socialist Caucus reading group. Strong recommend. Um, do you think that these uh, networks and or their components, you know, trucks, warehouses, distribution centers, could they be recuperated to serve the needs of the people? Or do you agree with Jasper Burns who argues in a piece that I will admit I did not finish as it was long and I was tired, um, bad. Um, well, actually, I mean, if you mean the counter, the logistics, counter logistics piece, I think he's saying a version of the same thing, which is that he's saying like that we should all in fact train ourselves to understand these provisioning networks in order precisely that we can first stop them and then seize them. Um, and so I think actually that's kind of what I was trying to get at in the in the sort of um, evocation of, of his work and thinking about, um, yeah, that like, you know, in a way there's a kind of um, there's a kind of social intelligence or general intellect embodied in those systems that could totally be reappropriated for an entirely different set of ends. Now, like I think from the ecological point of view, which is like a really interesting sort of question, a related question, I think you have to ask, like, is it good for us ecologically to have like an entirely globalized supply chain, right? So on, on that end, like you would probably, you would want to, to, to sort of seize them or reappropriate them in order to make them look a lot different. Um, but, but I actually think that, that, um, that part of his argument is that we could create these kinds of like communist counter logistics using the available networks produced by, um, 
pr produced by the globalization of supply chains that we could we could use them and do something different with them. Well, that is the last time I referenced something that I didn't finish. <laughs> I was going mainly on uh, mainly on out of the woods is uh, mm -hmm. intervention with it. So maybe they didn't finish it either. I don't know. <laughs> We've all been there. <laughs> Do our, uh, our panelists have any questions for each other about Jasper Burns's work or otherwise? Like what it says at the ends of various pieces he's written for EndNotes. I just, I had a question actually um, for, for Aaron, which is just, um, this is like, this is, this is a narcissistic question, but that chat question that suggested that like what I was saying about the automation of human resources through apps or the ways of like work process speed up that these forms of, that these kinds of technological developments enable. I don't actually think that we would disagree on that. Is that, we don't, right? No, not at all. So actually yeah. there, there was a, um, there's a whole section on technologies uh, and the, then forms of social control or workplace control that ended up getting cut from the NLR articles that I think are a really important part of the argument. I just wrote too much. And so um, those sections are like back in the book. But yeah, I think it's totally important that uh, these technologies have, have served as a way to, um, to exact workplace control. And if Amazon was planning to um, get rid of all of its warehouse workers, it's odd that they spent this time like investing in and patenting these new like bracelets and collars and stuff or not collars that would be too sort of um it, what is that movie uh, um, like uh um uh, sorry to bother you or something but like you know oh, they're that's investing these systems for for tracking workers movements in the warehouses and it's very clear that technologies are allowing for new sources of social control i had not heard the point made before about um the capacity of these technologies to replace like a management function. I think that is really interesting. Um, and I think the idea, yeah, a variety of ideas about how they're reorganizing work. That's really totally key, I think, for thinking about what's actually going on here. Yeah, one of the contexts that that seemed like really obviously happening to me was I was looking at Mechanical Turk and like um, outsourcing task outsourcing and like what the what the the users of MT themselves say is that like for MT to be scalable, it has to be usable for somebody who would be employing like 10,000 workers in a single hour, right? And so it's clear there that like you basically, that the app essentially turn over all of the, I mean, the app tracks everything like those bracelets at the Amazon, right? So you turn over the entire process of like, something like tailorized scientific management, but also human resources, like, you know, they do, you do it, you do it through Venmo or these, or you do it through cash payment systems in the case of care work. And you don't need, you don't need a human resources officer. Mm. You don't need somebody to do tax forms with you. You don't need somebody to force you to work faster. It's just that the way that the, that piece rate, the combination of piece rate systems of payment plus the app allow you to do that, like without human workers. And for those who don't know what mechanical Turk is, it's, uh, I guess, a, a work yourself to death program where you do mundane tasks for like two cents each through the internet. Yeah, basically. Yeah. And two average, cents is a good one. <laughs> average global hourly wage is less than $2 an hour. Um, yeah. And a lot of people actually like um, there's been a huge uptick in um, people signing onto the platform to work right now because it's it's you can do it at home. Um, 
so especially in places outside the United States, um, like India and Pakistan, uh, there's a huge, there's lots of people trying to get work on AMT. I think one other um, interesting thing to add to this, another kind of possible archive for thinking about like tech and like labor discipline is like ice because um, I got really into um, the ice raid of coke poultry in Mississippi last year um, and started reading like ice affidavits um, that just went on for like hundreds of pages that um, sort of recorded the because a lot of undocumented immigrants are like captured and then sort of um, monitored using these like ankle bracelets and then released to go back to work. And so when the ice raid happened, or sorry, prior to the ice raid happening, you had um, ICE agents just writing these extremely long reports about like in, in a lot of detail about um, the location and the time that they punched into um, work. So I, you know, there's a sort of um, overlap here between like the private sector and the state. Um, and, you know, you're talking about places like India, but this is happening in places like Mississippi where the, um, yeah, where the, the, the labor force in, in these industries like the poultry, but also like we're, talk, we're looking at like meatpacking is another one of these um, extremely <laughs> exploited, exploitative um, industries where um, there's a the state is the one carrying out um, the some of this work of tracking on behalf of of the industrialists. So. Yeah, I am afraid that like the U.S. is going to learn all the bad lessons from China and none of the good ones in this crisis, right? Which is that like they just need to track everybody better and surveil the population and be more authoritarian and uh, nothing to do with any kind of socialistic programs that exist there or like dropping off supplies for people while they play mahjong and hang out. Now, only the bad stuff. I had a question maybe, you know, broadly uh, around some of these. Um, well, yeah, I don't know, broadly related to what we've been talking about, about care work, because it just seems like, you know, in our society where um, there are just so many people living in these um, assisted living facilities or care homes and so many people are dying of COVID there. And it's like this huge amount of uncounted deaths, you know, so the FT did this whole analysis of like excess deaths and just showing how much, how many more people are dying. A lot of them are in these care homes and i'm just kind of wondering like elderly care facilities right i mean that the idea that the idea that the care of elderly people is like subjected to the profit motive or whatever i mean it's just i mean whatever the whole society is horrifying but it seems like a particularly horrifying example of that and i guess i'm just curious like if you guys have any thoughts about what's going on now around care facilities and like this just becoming death traps and also about what what would a better like what would a better society look like you know like in that regard as far as care um is that i often think like a little bit maybe about 
like automation as well, like even as a vision, like if it, even if it weren't going to happen just as a thought experiment, it seems really weird to me to think like, oh, well, we'll replace all work, including like elderly people getting taken care of robots. Like it seems like they should be able to interact with human beings. Not I feel like they already have that in Japan. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, what do you guys think? Anybody? Bueller. I, mean, I, I think it's totally dystopian to have a robot care for somebody. I think part of that job is really caring and the human touch. And I don't want to live in a future where robots take care of me. Uh, that's awful. I mean, I do think, though, like, I mean, this is where, to me, like, you know, your argument, Aaron, around automation is, like, particularly useful, which is that, like, you know, it's what's always been interesting to me is that we're obsessed with images in film and culture. We're obsessed with images of robots doing all kinds of care and service work. That's always the thing that robots do in movies, right? Like, we don't have movies about robots taking over manufacturing facilities. We have robot movies about robots taking care of children and old people and, you know, doing household work. Yeah, before but fact, they rise up and kill everyone. Right, exactly. Um, but in fact, of course, like that, you know, that's likely to be the last sector where this happens precisely because of all the processes that like MAGA pointed out for like keeping the rate of the, the rate of labor exploitation and the wages so high in those in those areas, right? If you have a massive vulnerable class of people who, because of citizenship status or race, like aren't able to access other forms of employment and you can pay them fucking nothing, then you don't need to build robots, right? It's way more complicated and expensive to build a robot when you could just exploit an immigrant. Um, and one of the one of the contexts in which like this has been, I've been thinking about this a lot is that I've been thinking about, and this, this argument has gotten a little bit more complicated, I'll admit, in the context of what's going on right at the moment. But I've been thinking for the last year a lot about like how freaked out a lot of people, including me, were um, about, um, about um, MOOCs and like online, the sort of automation of higher education, like those massive open university courses, right? And everybody was talking about that, like, let's say like, you know, I don't know, six or seven years ago, MOOCs, 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 they're going to automate us out of existence, blah, blah, blah. And in fact, like what's happening at that in that exact same period is a massive swell of adjunctification, right? So like, again, like why would a university bother to invest in the technology necessary to produce online education, particularly when there's not actually that much demand for it? when it's far easier to exploit this huge labor force that's willing to like work for like literally in some cases, nothing. Um, and so like, it's another one of those instances where I feel like there's something about the kind of cultural discourse. This is part of what you're talking about in, in your stuff too, is that like part of the cultural discourse is like distracting us from like what the real threat is, which is not automation and not robots work serving old people, but, but the vulnerability of the actual humans doing the jobs right now. Yeah, I think say, that I've Oh, go ahead, sorry. I've had many talks with Bob Brenner about this and this is exactly 100%. I I hope if if he's watching that he's like that's what she said. Um yeah, that this exactly the this question of um the cost of automating and creating robots even if you could, setting aside the fact that I don't think you actually can create robots that do this, right? Like that's another aspect of this that um, domestic worker organizers say all the, start with this all the time that UCLA, my campus, um, you know, spent the last 16 years or something trying to create a robot that folds laundry and they can't perfect this like robot to do this sort of basic task. So even setting aside 
um, the idea that you even can make that, you know, the idea that it would be more profitable than, you know, the kind of, in, than just hiring disposable, very cheap labor that's, you know, in abundance, especially in, in, in these crises that like you have the, the supply right there. You don't need necessarily to automate from a kind of, um, point of view of trying to increase profits you just use workers until you're done and then there's you know hundreds of of other equally exploitable workers waiting in the wings right like sorry um i just wanted to get to the uh the chat questions to close it out but you can go ahead and i can do that next oh i was just gonna say like yeah, if we could create robots that were capable of doing care work, they would be the ethical equivalent of humans and therefore justified in rising up and killing us like they did in Westworld. However, I do like the idea Spoiler of... Uh, oh, well, sorry. It's been a while since the first season ended. Um, I won't apologize. Spoilers are, spoilers are for fools. Anyway, um, I do like the idea of automating other kinds of work but based around human needs not around the needs of the market like you talk a lot about that in your piece Aaron uh you don't seem to be a luddite who's like inherently against technology but the content of the technology that capitalism has given us is not neutral but like I have to believe in a, in a just world based around human needs, we would decide what kind of work has value to us and what kind of work we're like, well, you know, maybe let the Roomba sweep the floor or whatever. Like there's nothing inherently uh, bad or degrading about care work. In fact, it's like extremely important, right? And it's like blows my mind that people will just like, pay a 14 year old like $10 an hour to watch their kids for them. Like that's your child, you know, like this is really important work and it requires a lot of skills of the people who are doing it that are just not acknowledged due to various factors, mostly racism and sexism, I think. But like the, the idea of starting from a place of uh, what are human needs and going from there just seems so much more liberating to me in terms of what kind of technology we're going to make. Yeah. I mean, I agree with that completely. I, I, I sort of, I sort of, the thought experiment I propose in the, in the piece is like that all the automation theorists, they often say that automation will finally make possible a world of general human dignity, like a world where everyone's free of drudgery and so on. And you know, the, the idea is to reverse that and start from a world of human dignity and then imagine, try to imagine how technologies fit into that. And I think there is a lot of room for technology, obviously, to solve all kinds of problems. So the question is, what would a human-driven technological story look like, exactly like you uh, put it, rather than a profit-driven one? And obviously, it would look very different. And we see that already today, right? There's all these technologies that actually could make workers work better, but they're not adopted if they would also make workers more powerful within the workplace. And so, um, yeah, I think that, that those are those are the really key questions for the future, if we have one. Ah, uh, geez. Let's, let's be optimists tonight and say that we 
possibly do? I don't know. How much time do we have? Can I ask like a what is to be done question before we uh, throw it to? Well, let me let me just ask the two chat questions and we can answer them or not. And I think the second chat question, maybe you, you can jump off from that one. And we'll we'll try to do another five, 10 minutes and throw it to Phil. Okay. So uh, the first of two chat questions. Um, this is from Michael in the chat. MAGA's work uh, reminds him of these senior care villas in Thailand that Western Europeans are sending their loved ones to uh, for an offer of quote unquote, uh, 24 hour dementia care. Um, how is wealthy migration changing work internationally when people shipped uh, loved ones around the world? Um, and I'll just add to that that uh, you know this this pandemic is is finally getting some coverage to the ongoing tragedy that is elder care in the United States, where uh, you know one worker has to you know take care of over a dozen people in a single day, and now you know they the the workers and you know a very perilous condition as well as their patients. And then the second question. Are there contemporary political programs slash projects that can respond to these declining conditions of real productivity under capital? If we should take over production, how do y'all see this happening? Yeah, I think that the the question of the villas in Thailand is like really interesting. I'm not familiar with them, but one of the things that um, people say in the kind of care work movement or struggle is that... Um, one of the leverage points of leverage for care workers is the idea that um, a lot of the actual work that they do can't be outsourced. So it's work that takes place in the home. You know, you heard people, some people on the kind of the liberal spectrum of this um, lobbying to the California governor, Jerry Brown, a few years ago saying that like, you know, you should give uh, workers rights because you will eventually become an elder and will need care. And so you should take care of people. So um, I don't know how um, it's interesting to think about how creating kind of like third world outsourcing farms for some of this work will change some of that leverage. But I think that um, this is one of the interesting things I'm thinking about, like uh, social reproduction, strategic chokeholds, or, um, you know, in, in the when we talk about uh, international women's strike type things, that this is a point of leverage. Um, this might be, this kind of outsourcing might be a trend in order to kind of um, curb some of that. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's an interesting, really interesting question. Uh, anyone else have thoughts? Should I ask a uh, next one? I mean, mm -hmm. on the were you going to ask about the like? Yeah, you were going to ask a what is to be done question, right? So maybe yeah. What, what... Yeah, um, I will combine several questions that I wrote into one question because we're running out of time, and they are all very similar. Let's see how that goes. So uh, we are already seeing the right and the forces of capital capitalizing on this crisis in a kind of disaster capitalism, like what Naomi Klein wrote about in the shock doctrine. 
um, Trump and the federal government are using these strings attached federal funds to try to coerce states into cutting social benefits or even get rid of sanctuary cities like things just things on their wish list. Right. While the Democrats have done basically nothing to oppose this, let alone make any uh, even vague center left demands of your own of their own. Right. When Jake Tapper is making his bitch face at Nancy Pelosi, you know, someone fucked up um, at the same time. People are really pulling together with things like mutual aid, rent strikes, various kinds of work stoppages. Um, do you guys see any openings here for a kind of disaster communism? And what kind of praxis going forward is inspiring to you in terms of moving us towards the world that we want to see and maybe even stitching together these kinds of isolated uprisings into a larger movement against a common enemy that can actually challenge the power of capital in the state. I'll just like, I'll just take an opportunity to, um, to, to represent some, um, some groups of folks that I think are doing really good work, which is, um, I just saw a presentation a couple of days ago from somebody from the anti-eviction mapping project in Oakland. Um, they've been doing really amazing work around um, rent strikes and tenants rights in the Bay area for a long time and, and really tracking um, what's going on and also helping to get people um, knowledgeable and organized about like what happens if you're renting an apartment from a shell company, et cetera. And they've been kind of tying that work together in the last month or so with work being done by tenants against um like the use of biometrics as um, as security in buildings. This is happening particularly in places like New York, where tenants are saying there's there's been a push to to use more bio, biometric systems um, and automated uh, sort of algorithmically automated systems to do facial recognition stuff for building entrances and tenants working against that. And so bringing together. Um, questions of like housing justice and particularly housing justice for non-housing owners with questions of um, surveillance, data surveillance and tracking in the context of COVID. I think that work is really inspiring. So their work and the work of the LA Tenants Union um, down here in LA, I think like um, the stuff that's happening around rent strikes and housing justice is like really fucking where it's at, basically. Word. Yeah, I would, I would also say, I mean, I think that the the thing that's happening right now that I find the most inspiring are the are the rent strikes and the organization of that. I mean, it's incredible to live in a time where I think, I mean, not only are I think a, there was something like a third or or whatever of people were not paying rent, and or the idea of organizing in solidarity and to meet needs of people, like kind of broadening that and going further as a big challenge to a world where um, so much of the income that accrues to, to capital accrues in the form of rent on all of these properties. And even, you know, even, even businesses are getting in on the rent strike, right? Like there's all these businesses that are refusing to pay rent and they should be a model, I think, for working class people and just refusing um, to, to accept the, the, the demands for payment for all kinds of things. But I think that it is a really interesting question. Like if that even happened on a really massive scale, um, what how do we like those those kind of stoppages and blockages are a precondition of this other thing which is like how we would actually take over the world as it is and transform it and that requires us to move i think it requires 
struggles over reproduction, which I think we've seen a lot of. Um, and in addition, you know, to become struggles over production, they have to find some way to actually take over production and transform the world um, that we live in. And so I found it very interesting to live in a time where, yeah, all of these, as you mentioned, Jamie, I think very early on in the program, all of these people, we've lived in a time where for like decades now, um, elites, capitalists have said like the people who are dragging our economy down are the uneducated. You know, it's like this whole discourse, like shaming people for having, you know, whatever common jobs and talking about, oh, they're going to get automated out of existence. Or, like people living in rural areas, you know, they should just die like they, if they're not needed. And to live in a time where suddenly it's just revealed how much our world depends on the everyday common work of all of these people uh, who are now, you know, Amazon has priced the chance of dying of COVID in one of their warehouses at like $2 an hour. Like that's the, that's the kind of, you know, worlds that we live in. And um, I'm very excited by the strikes that are starting to happen among so-called essential workers. And I wonder if um, what the meeting point is between the struggles over reproduction, like like um, mutual aid and rent strikes, and these struggles in the Amazon warehouses and so on. And I actually think that we would need a vision of how that could come together, like actually some idea about what the world is that um, we would want to replace that. And I think that the Republic of Walmart is not the answer, um, but that means that it's on us to like come up with an answer. And, uh, you know, I, I think that the idea of sharing work and reducing work in order to make the world freedom is a good starting point. But I think as I've kind of continued these investigations, the truth is it's really, it's hard. It's a big problem. And it would be great for us to kind of re begin more to have these conversations about planning, about um, decentralized kinds of activities that could uh, produce a different world. Well, I, for one, am working very hard on my robot Rev app uh, coming soon in 2021. Talk about techno determinism. Just kidding. Robots <laughs> are bad. Or maybe not. Jury's still out. Maybe we like them, but only after, you know, after we take back the world. Um, does anyone else have uh, final thoughts on this topic? Or show? Yeah. I have one, the last word. I mean... I think Aaron's point about like doing more work to think about the relationship between mutual aid and, and these other kind of Amazon like um, struggles is a, a, an amazing one. And we should probably talk more about that in general, but I just wanted to make one last point that in the, in the, like right before this started, I learned about a day laborer in LA who was killed um, died of COVID-19 um, that he contracted probably from looking for work on, on street corners. And there's a lot of kind of criminalization that's happening of, of day labor type folks. And I think that the, you know, as someone mentioned this earlier, but we really need to kind of um, think about this, what opportunities for the left there are in pushing this kind of essential worker discourse and thinking about, especially like workers who are essential, but, but disposable. And I've seen a lot of kind of really interesting um, pushes uh, on the, yeah, some interesting pushes, including kind of this discourse of essential, but excluded this, this other 
campaign that I talked about, SB 1257, but there's also like this op-ed that's going around now talking about like um, documentation. And I'd like to see more thinking about like open borders um, discourse alongside this kind of essential um, essential worker discourse. And um, yeah, I, I, I like to talk about myself as a single issue person and that's open borders. It's so important. Okay, thanks so much, everybody. This was a great chat. Uh, I want to thank also uh, Sean Landis, who is working behind the scenes, uh, moderating the chat, keeping everything running. And uh, to Red May in general, you know, if you've enjoyed the talk, please please donate, um, help help uh, help Phil recoup some of the funds. And uh, with that, we will throw it back to Phil, our own well, yeah, thank, show. Yeah, thank fight. you so much, Phil. Well, thank Sorry. You guys. I'm glad I finally got you all in the same room. It's a wonderful conversation and all of your work kind of meshes one into the other in a way that you can kind of see the cycle of expanded capital reproduction work its way through or attempt to work its way through domestic work at the, at the far end and not quite be able to do it. Um, I, you know, uh, we are gonna have Aaron on again I believe are we aren't we with Robert Brenner to actually talk about the um, and um, if I if I if I had it all together like uh, Jamie and Andy did I could recite you the exact take but I can't do it I'll just have to say go to the website and look at it I mean uh, we also have another a couple of other things that would be interesting that are in a way continuations of this discussion or at least uh, you know on the supply chain uh, there's something called bottlenecks. Uh, uh, choke points and supply chains uh, about the logistics net network. And we got the all-star all cast. I mean, everybody except Jasper. I mean, it got so big, that, but I, I kept thinking- He was here in spirit. Well, we have a Lala Khalili, a Deb Deborah Cowan, uh, Charmaine Chua, uh, Sandro Mazedra, who has a book called uh, The Politics of Operations, Logistics, Extractivism, and Finance. And uh, Dara Orenstein, who has a wonderful new book called The Warehouse, uh, uh, Out of Stock, The History of the Warehouse in, in Capitalism. So that's, and plus Spencer Cox is an Amazon worker and geographer who has uh, organized people at Amazon. So we're gonna be looking at the supply chains, how to stop them, what they do, what we're gonna be short of. Uh, and we also have, um, I'm going to do an interview with a, a guy named Martin Arboleda, who has a book called The Planetary Mine, which is also about supply chains in Chile, and and talk about uh, talk about automation. Uh, in you know, people are talking about having a Google self-driving cars. Uh, they've got trucks there that do mining up in the uh, up in the Atacama Desert, uh, where the whole thing is automated. You know, they look for uh, they look for the, uh, they use bio, bio agents to try to uh, 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 treat the, the ground underneath so they can see stuff and they can get, uh, they can get uh, uh, what am I saying, layers that are usually not accessible. But anyway, it's automated all the way to, uh, to uh, onto the, the port and onto the ships and, and to, uh, factories in the Pearl River Delta, they don't have light in them because they don't need them because robots are turning the whole thing out. 
anyway, uh, he combines that with a kind of a, 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 a take, a, a theoretical take from Moish Bastone. So I'm, I'm fascinated with the book. I, I will do my best to try to, to bring out every, everything about it that's relevant to these discussions. But uh, those are two that are roughly about logistics. And uh, uh, we're also having a political economy of COVID-19. Uh, Radhika Desai, a political economist up in Winnipeg, has done a, a great article about it. She's going to talk about that. And uh, David McNally will be responding. So, so we'll have a lot of talk about where and what this is going. But as Andy says, the thing that makes it all go round in the society we're living in now, unfortunately, uh, when we take off our glasses, we see it says, give to Red May up there on the buildings, you know, uh, and, and bring down the societies. So uh, go to go to www.redmayseattle.org, click on donate, do what you can. Thanks, everybody. It was a blast listening to you. Yeah.